And time and time again, you find yourself drawn by the fire. Were you looking for freedom as the singer in the song? Were you looking for hope, for security, for prosperity, for glory, for legacy? What were you looking for? And you kept being drawn by the fire. I love this song. It's written by Noah Gunderson, a country artist, the good kind of country. I'll fight over those words. Um, And I love this song because it's so relatable to me. I I think anybody can find themselves in the lyrics of this song. Now, obviously, none of us were born in lighthouses, I don't think. That'd be crazy. Um, I imagine the the story itself might not line up with yours, but the themes behind it of, of looking for something being drawn by these things that you know they're not going to be good for you. The devil, this fine woman, both of them say, I'm your enemy. You know, you know when you're looking in the eyes of fire that it's not going to be good for you, and yet you're drawn anyways. Then isn't it amazing how, as people of faith, we end up finding what we're looking for through our faith and life with God, but in places and in situations and in times that we don't expect. I was told to find Jesus, it says, in a stained glass church. But when he finally came to visit me, he was dressed in the rags of poverty. I I asked Rafe to play this song this morning uh, to start our, our, our sermon, to start this series, because I think this song is in some ways the song of Adam and Eve. It's the song of how everything goes wrong in Genesis chapter 3. It's, it's where we start our story in the Bible. It's a story of looking for something, yearning for something that you think you need, and you keep going to this fire, and you're drawn by these fiery eyes, and it only leads you to more trouble and more brokenness and more wandering until finally, finally, you meet the God that you really need, and it's nothing like you expected. That is the journey that we're going to go on for the next seven weeks, and we're starting today with how it all fell apart in the first place, with the story of Adam and Eve. Now, this is a story that I'm sure many of us have heard many times, Um, but today I want us to approach the story and read the story, not just looking at it in the microcosm of Adam and Eve, but understanding it as a part of a larger narrative that this is the way that our sacred holy text chooses to start the story of how God wins his people's hearts. And we start with everything falling apart. (laughs) We're going to read this morning from Genesis chapter 3. This is after God has established creation. He's spent his time building this magnificent, perfect world. He's got this special place that is called the Garden of Eden that he invites Adam and Eve into. He establishes this special sacred trust with them where he says, this is going to be the easiest life you could ask for. You, you, if you throw a seed on the ground, it'll sprout up into the biggest, most fruitful tree. All the animals will listen to your commands. You're in charge of these things. You're going to name these things. This is going to be paradise for you. I have one request. Just one. That tree in the center of the garden, the one that looks really good, that's a special tree. And that's the one tree I'm going to ask you not to eat from. The whole rest of the world is yours. Everything is yours, but that tree, that tree is mine. I'm going to ask you to stay away from that tree. And even if you'd never read the story before, you know where this is going. 
Let's begin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Okay, let's stop right there. This first portion, there's something interesting happening here, and it involves the Hebrew language. um, And so it's not something that's going to come across if we read it in 21st century English vernacular. It's these two words that are used, one to describe the serpent and one to describe Adam and Eve. The word that's used to describe the serpent is crafty. We see the word crafty. The serpent was more crafty than any other animal in the world. Well, the the Hebrew word there is this word arum. Arum means crafty. And then at the end of this section, the end of of this sort of vignette, we find out that Adam and Eve realize that they are naked. They they realize their nakedness. The word for being naked or having nakedness is the word arumim. Arum means crafty. Arumim means naked or vulnerable. Do you hear the connection between the two? Arum, arumim. The the Hebrew language is full of these kind of play on words. And the the Old Testament is full of these kind of play on words that unless we get into this original text, we don't really understand how these stories are really uh, tied together. And what the author in this portion is trying to say is that this snake has this uncanny craftiness, this ability to see to see piercingly with his fiery eyes, to see the arumim, the vulnerability, the nakedness of Adam and Eve. This is the snake's power. It's not just that he's smart, that that we reduce it too much like the, the the snake was smart. Okay, no. The snake had this piercing ability to see exactly where Adam and Eve were their most vulnerable. And when I read this story this week, when I, when I consider it in, in the context of my own life, I have to remember, and Lord, if this week doesn't wake you up to it, there, when we join the Methodist church, when we are baptized in the Methodist faith, in the Christian faith, we're asked a simple question, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness? I think in, in American Christianity, we, we can sometimes push away from this concept that there is something evil in the world supernaturally that is working against good and I might lose some of y'all here for a second but I'm okay with that because pastors should lose their people for a second once in a while if you're uncomfortable with the idea that there is actually a force of evil a force of wickedness not equal but opposite to God if that's if that's hard for you to comprehend then, then I would ask you again to look at the events of this week 
or look at the state of where we are I- I as a nation, as a world, in terms of violence, in terms of our ability to talk with one another, in terms of our ability to love one another, and tell me that you don't sense there's something bigger than just bad stuff happens. And, and what I know is true about this evil force. In Genesis, we see it personified in a serpent. In uh, later stages in the Old Testament, we assign it the name of the devil or, or, or Satan. Uh, in, in the New Testament, it's talked about more generally as this, this sort of evil uh, force and power. Um, what I know about it, I know two things about it. Number one is that this evil presence does not see the beauty or the goodness or the perfection at the heart of who we are or our world. Everyone in this room was made to be good. I believe that 120,000%. Everyone in this room, everyone outside this room, everyone in this world was made to be good by a good and loving God. Everyone in this room has a perfected state that God is working at, that God is, is trying so desperately to get us to. And I believe a thousand percent that the enemy, the devil, the serpent, whatever you want to call it, doesn't see that. What the enemy, the serpent, the devil has a PhD in is our vulnerabilities. That, the serpent, is crafty about that the serpent knows a hundred thousand million percent and you can be resistant to this idea but I guarantee you there are times in your life where you have walked from brokenness to brokenness and you keep being drawn by these fiery eyes and you keep finding brokenness and failure and brokenness and failure and I wonder if maybe maybe the serpent has realized what your vulnerability is I wonder if maybe part of your journey Part of my journey is not to realize where we are naked, where we are vulnerable, and to realize that that is exactly where the serpent, the devil, the enemy, the evil force, whatever you want to call it, the spiritual force of wickedness and evil, that is exactly where it's going to try and get a foothold. Now that's hard to process. That's hard to comprehend because then what you realize is like, Scott, how do I fight against something like that, right? I don't like thinking about this. How am I going to fight against like, this cosmic force of evil, right? Here I am. I'll slay you, you know. It's silly, right? That's the point. You can't. <laughs> Some of us are vulnerable in really obvious ways. If you've ever struggled with addiction, if you've ever struggled with mental health, like one of my vulnerabilities is depression, right? That, I know that there are seasons in my life where that's exactly where I'm going to get attacked. And guess what? Scott's not going to pull himself out of his own depression. It doesn't work like that. Reagan, does it? No. I'll hide under the covers for a month. I don't need to talk to y'all. I'm depressed, right? That's how it works. Fun at parties. Um, what I do is over the summer, when I know I'm going into a season like that, I call up my doctor. I say, hey, we need to meet. And I hook up with my buddy, Sertraline. Sertraline friends in the room? Yeah. Yeah, we'll have a party together. Um, I just said, I'm okay. Um, I call up therapists. I start going to therapy. There are things I need in my life to help protect me because the God's honest truth is I'm just naked in that area. I'm just vulnerable. There's no way around it. It's who I am. I don't love it. It's not my favorite part about myself, but I know that that's a vulnerability of mine, so I know that I'm not going to be able to fix that on my own, and the fire eyes are going to stare at me, and it's going to attack me right there. And it's going to crumble me. It's going to break me unless I look outside of myself. Unless I ask my God to be on my side. Unless I pray to God, God, give me the strength to walk into the therapist's room even though I don't want to. Give me the strength to call up my doctor even though I don't want to. Give me the strength to look for things beyond myself so that the serpent, the enemy, the devil, the cosmic force of wickedness and evil, whatever you want to call it, so that it doesn't beat me this time. 
When you look in the eyes of the serpent, what do you see? That's where we've got to start today. We've got to put ourselves in this story. When you look in the eyes of the serpent, did you notice that, that what Eve saw, she didn't just see a fruit that looked good, did she? What did Eve see? She looked at that tree. She said, ooh, that tree looks tasty. More than that, that looks like something that could give me wisdom. See, for Eve, her vulnerability is she, she wanted more than what she'd been given. God had given Adam and Eve this perfect, simple life, but Eve wanted to know more. She wanted to have this wisdom that God possessed. So when she looked in the eyes of the serpent, the serpent said, oh, I can give you that. I can give you all the wisdom in the world. God's going to try and keep that from you. He doesn't want you to be wise. Come with me. So my question for us is when you look in the eyes of the serpent, what is it that you are so certainly hungry for that the snake says, oh, yeah, I can get you that. I can get you that right over there. You know that that act of unfaithfulness that God's been asking you not to do? Actually, if you do that, that's exactly what you need. What is it? What's that vulnerability? What's that pressure point? What's that opening that the serpent sees in your life? And he's saying, I can give you that. If we don't wake up to that, then we're going to continue, like the singer in the song, we're going to continue to wander from brokenness to brokenness to brokenness because the fire will continue to draw us in. Let's keep reading, picking up in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. That's a fail-safe plan. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You ever ask your kids a question you already know the answer to? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate. Yeah, passing the buck, Adam. Cool, 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 cool. I, don't, I couldn't do anything. She handed me the... Adam does not start his guys off on a very good foot. I'm just saying... The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. Yeah, okay, thanks, Eve. Yeah, we're all just like, no, it's them, it's them. Let's stop there for a second. So it is kind of a humorous scene, right? You're meant to, if you read this, if you were to read this in the temple to, uh, you know, uh, Jewish rabbis 2,500 years ago, they'd be rolling on the floors laughing. You know, it's it's a humorous scene. You know, it's the best attempt that they have at comedy back then, right? Um, It's humorous because, A, you think that you can hide from God. That doesn't really work, does it? It's humorous because God sort of is drawn, he wants to hear these answers from their lips. He knows what's happened, but he wants to hear them say it for themselves. He wants to hear some responsibility taken. And then, you know, of course, responsibility is not taken. Well, it's their fault. Well, it's their fault. Well, it's their fault. The, the tragic part of this story is the fact that after they eat this fruit, they know exactly what they've done, and they run and hide. They run and hide from this God who made them, who loves them, who made a perfect world for them. But they're so ashamed Because they know that they've done what? They've broken that trust. 
they've broken that trust that they were supposed to have with God and this promise. I mean, they, they have this promise between them and God. We're going to live in this world. You're going to provide everything for us in return. We're just not going to eat the fruit of this tree. And they do the one thing they're not supposed to do. The core of any good covenant that we're going to see in the next six weeks as we approach Easter, the core of any good covenant is built on trust. And if you don't have trust, you don't have a covenant. And Adam and Eve, they break the trust with God because of what? Because they're hungry for something outside of themselves. Eve is hungry for wisdom. But more than that, what she and Adam are really hungry for is self-reliance. They're hungry to be in control. They're hungry to be independent. They're hungry to be in charge of themselves. They don't like this idea of being obedient They don't like this idea of depending upon God. And let me tell you, I don't know that we're that much different than Adam and Eve today. Do you, North Dallas? I mean, really. I mean, it's crazy to me. The most American Christian phrase you could ever think of is, God helps those who help themselves. Right? Think about that phrase first. Have you ever heard that phrase? Have you ever said that phrase? Have you ever believed that phrase? Do you believe it this morning? I'm about to ruin it for you. Okay. God helps those who help themselves might be the worst interpretation of the story of Adam and Eve that I've ever seen in my life. Adam and Eve literally help themselves to a forbidden fruit. And they end up in a broken world as a result of it. We somehow in America and more specifically in Texas and more specifically in Dallas and most specifically in the region of North Dallas, let's name it. We value independence, we value resourcefulness, we value self-reliance, we value these things so much. In fact, if you're someone, if I were to say right now, is it good for you to depend on others for your needs? A lot of us would say, that sounds terrible. Is it good to be someone who is dependent in your life? No, okay, my, my, my like therapist and my psychologist are like, whoa, Scott, careful, careful. Okay, I get like dependence is like a problem. I'm saying we have it on the flip side. We have this mentality that, that independence, self-reliance, pull yourself up, buy your own bootstraps. That is the only way to go through life. And the Christian faith is going to just, oh, it's just going to smash you head on. Because the whole problem, the whole problem here, this whole issue of broken trust between God and Adam and Eve, it all comes back to this need to be self-reliant. It's like, yeah, 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 God, I get that I can toss seeds in the ground and they sprout up and all the animals, they listen to what I say and everything is perfect, but I want that fruit, the one you told me not to eat, the one that, I, that the serpent said is going to make me smart like you. I won't be smart like you, God. The whole issue is this mentality that we're supposed to be self-reliant and independent. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to adopt the Christian faith, you're going to have to get more comfortable with the idea of being obedient and being dependent upon God. Because self-reliance will kill your trust in God. It will. As long as you think you are the answer to all of your needs, what in the world do you need God for then? Really? Then God's just sort of this thing that you go and talk to on Sundays and then you get back to your life. Okay, bye God. I'll see you next Sunday. I've had a faith like that at times. Have you? Like, I really didn't need God. I didn't need God on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday. I didn't even really need God on Sunday. I could have gone to church and just heard some pastors say something interesting and sung some Coldplay songs, and we would have been fine. Really? Have you never had a faith like that? I guess I'm the only one. Okay, that's fine. But there is this mentality that, that, that we have to be independent, self-reliant, and as long as we adopt that mentality, it's going to kill our trust in God. My question for us this morning, when is the last time that you've put yourself truly in a position to need God for something? 
Now, this, this is going to make some of y'all very uncomfortable. This makes me uncomfortable. When I put myself in a position in life to where I actually need God to come through, because guess what? I can't control the outcome at that point. Who likes that? Who loves being out of control? And that's why I love the Christian faith, because it asks me to do things that I don't want to do. And it asks me to go down roads that I don't want to go down, and it puts me in this position of humility and dependence and obedience that is like the opposite of how I want to live my life. But I'll tell you what, isn't it the darndest thing how when I adopt that spirit, my life just seems to get better. Not easier. Not easier. My life just seems to get better. I seem to find more purpose. I seem to find a greater relationship with a God who actually wants to be active in my life. Let's read the end of our story this morning. It's a really happy ending. Ready? Some of y'all know where we're going. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Those who hate snakes say amen. I love snakes. What's wrong with you? Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You will be the head of the house Slytherin. No, sorry. Um, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring, your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. This seems fair. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall Eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. If you were here for Ash Wednesday, you heard those words spoken over you. By the way, I think it's interesting that Eve gets like crazy, ridiculous, painful, almost death-inducing childbirth, and Adam has to go to work. (laughs) Just saying. Um, The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made garments of skins. For the man and for his wife, and clothed them. Okay. So what I just read, really depressing stuff. I mean, this is is the end of all the goodness. This is the end of the beginning, so to speak, and the beginning of the middle, right? The rest of the story starts now. This is falling into a broken world. This is being cast out of perfection. This is facing a life of dust and death and toil and pain and why do I choose to end here on a Sunday morning? Because Sunday mornings are supposed to end on good news, right? We did end on good news. It's just subtle, and you might have missed it. I did the first several times I ever read this story. Can we put up that last verse? The Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife, and he clothed them. Now, if you've heard me teach this story in the past, you may remember this, but This story is beautiful to me because of this verse right here. Let's zoom out for a second and consider what story we've been told so far. Imagine you know nothing else about the Bible for a second. Imagine you're coming at this for the very first time. You read in chapter 1, there's this mighty, masterful, powerful God who can create everything out of nothing, who made all of the stars and made all of the land and all of the sea and all of the animals and all of the fish and all of the birds. All of it is his. He makes all of this. 
And then in chapter 2, you read, you know, he cared so much to make two specific people, and he breathed life into them, and he gave them everything good he'd ever made. And he said, here, have this perfect, simple life. This is yours. Take it. Run with it. Have a wonderful eternity. And in chapter 3, they throw it back in his face, and they spit at it, and they say, nope, we don't want that. Now, if this is the first time you've heard this story, what do you think is going to happen next? Well, that didn't work. Reset. Right? I mean, really. really. If you're God, right? Like, did you ever play The Sims? Do you, remember, do you remember the game The Sims on a computer? Like, what if you started a character and five minutes in he, like, burned the house down? You're like, well, let's start a new game. This is not working, clearly. This was, this was bad. I don't know what happened. This one went bad, right? Why would God do anything other than just go, <laughs> well, I screwed something up. Need to look at that again. Reset. Try again. He's the God of the universe. He doesn't need this. And he clothes them. That tells you something so clearly about the way that God sees humanity. A way that the God of the Old Testament sees his people in such a different way than any of the gods that existed when these texts were being written. I mean, you'll find next week in Noah, there, there, are, there are lots of stories that are similar to the stories in the Old Testament. But let me tell you, the God is very different. And in this story, the God we're presented with is a mighty God, a powerful God, a universal cosmic force of good and perfect and holy. And it all goes sideways. And for his response is to kneel down and like dressing your kid to go outside. He just gets them in their clothes. Here, you know what? Those fig leaves are not going to cut it for the desert, you ding-dongs, you know? I mean, really, has your kid ever wanted to go outside and they, it's like 20 degrees outside, they're wearing flip-flops and shorts? You're like, that's not going to do it. Let me put you in something better, you know? And he gets them buttoned up and he says, okay, it's going to be hard. I, you want to do this, you're going to have to do this. But let me tell you, what I see in uh, just a sentence, just one sentence, what I see is a God who says, we're going to get through this together. What is it like to worship a God, to enter into covenant with a God who is perfect and holy and mighty, but a God who says when you fall on your face and when everything goes sideways and when you commit the one unfaithful act I've asked you not to do, I'm going to dress you up and we're going to get through this together. And it's going to be a long journey. It's going to be a hard one. In this series, we're going to meet Noah Sarah and Abraham, who talk about family systems, y'all buckle up. Look at Moses, look at Aaron, look at David. David had some demons. And we're going to arrive at Jesus. We've got seven weeks, including today, where we're going to look at these covenants. And sometimes they go well, and sometimes it goes sideways. But the constant theme is that we have a God who gets down on his knees and says, we are going to make this through together. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not going to let your sin be the end of the story. And that, my friends, is good, good news. Let's pray. Gracious God, holy God, mighty God, God who formed everything out of nothing, God who will not allow evil to have the final word, the God who is close to the hearts of Parkland, Florida, 
that God is close to the hearts of everyone who has suffered this past week. The God who is with us now in this moment. God of promises and covenants. God of forgiveness and grace. We ask that you would look down upon us. A people who are full of dust and pain and death. Whose stories go sideways. Whose promises get broken time and time again. God, I ask that just like with Adam and Eve, you would remind us that in the moments of our greatest darkness, in the moments of our greatest despair, that is the moment that your grace comes bursting in. God, if there's anyone in this room this morning who is vulnerable and needs to talk to somebody, I, I would urge you put upon their hearts to reach out and talk to someone, whether that's me or Reagan or to a, a medical professional. God, I, I just ask that you would put upon their hearts, let today be the day when the story starts to get better. And God, for those of us who are walking through a, a life that is complicated and maybe we're at a low point in our faith, maybe this morning we realize that we haven't needed you in a while. God, I ask that you would allow us to resume a position of humility and of obedience and of dependence, as hard as that might be. Help us to invite you into our lives, into our world, so that you might perform an act that no one else, including us, could ever do. Lastly, God, as we begin a series on covenant, as we process this message during the week, as we come back the Sundays to come, I ask that you'd remind us that when you invite us into promises, you, you have expectations. There, there are consequences for actions, but God, your grace always remains. And your mercy always has the final word. And there is nothing, 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 as your scripture says, nothing that can separate us from your love. Certainly not our sin. We are so thankful to worship a God who would cross eternity to walk this journey with us. And it's in your son's holy and precious, resurrected, redeeming name that we pray and we say, amen.